Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. Created by Notation Capital, sponsored by Sapphire Ventures. You can find us online at notationcapital.com or back us on AngelList. Evan Jassain Dar is a partner at Invesco Private Capital, a division of Invesco, which is a public asset management company. He's an investor, or Invesco is an investor, in funds like Union Square Ventures, Foundry, Graycroft, Lair. I could go on, but I won't. Uh, he was previously a vice president with Atlantic Trust. Evan, welcome. Welcome back. Thank welcome you. Welcome back. Good to be here. <laughs> So we had so much that. fun the first time. Right. <laughs> right. So, this Alex, is, this is a repeat recording because right. we actually have done this before with Evan. Uh, it was great, but unfortunately for Evan, we were still learning about microphones and things like that. And it had to be scrapped. So, appreciate your patience and, and re recording with us, Evan. Of course. I also had one or two drinks the first time. <laughs> I can't speak for you guys, but um, so tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and your background. Sure. Um, so never, you know, going all the way back to, to undergrad and I went to a school called Washington and Lee, which is a liberal arts school. Never really thought I would go into finance, um, was a history major undergrad. Subsequently, after, after graduating, decided I didn't want to be sort of a lawyer or a teacher or anything like that and went into finance broadly defined. I joined a firm uh, out of school uh, called Atlantic Trust, which is a uh, private wealth management firm, sort of a multifamily office. Um, and that was in New York? Uh, that was actually in Boston. Okay. That was in Boston at the time. Um, shortly thereafter, uh, because for a brief period of time, Atlantic Trust was an affiliated company of Invesco. Actually, after I joined Atlantic Trust, the firm was purchased by Invesco. It has subsequently been sold by Invesco. Okay. Um, but there was a, an affiliate group, um, Invesco Private Capital, uh, which was based in New York, uh, which was doing some things that we were talking about doing at Atlantic Trust, had some conversations with them, and ultimately joined Invesco Private Capital, or IPC, in late 2007, early 2008. Um, and IPC, Invesco Private Capital, is a, a private equity and venture capital fund of funds platform. Uh, so we invest through either commingled funds or separate accounts in private equity and venture capital funds. We also do some direct investing, which is traditionally called co-investing, though you know our efforts tend to be a bit more broad than, than sort of um, uh, specific or explicit co-investing as it's traditionally uh, regarded. Uh, and then secondary investing where we uh, buy and sell sec uh, stakes and limited partnership interests on, on the secondary market. You, you focus now almost entirely on venture capital, right? Rather right. Yes. So, so the firm, you know, historically has done both private equity and venture. Uh, we also, you know, have a, a bit of a predilection toward newer funds, which I can talk about a little bit later. Um, but we as a firm and me specifically certainly are gravitating increasingly toward venture capital. So we've always done venture and actually the group uh, dates back to the early 80s. Um, 
and and had its roots in in many, in many respects as a both a direct and a fund investment uh, investor within venture capital. But my focus is almost exclusively on venture capital. Um, and again, as as I said, you know, we are even you know more and more specializing in, in venture versus private equity. We've had a lot of VC fund to fund folks on the show so mm-hmm. far. You've been an investor in both private equity and venture over sure. the course of your career. Like, what are the differences in terms of the questions that you're asking or the things that you're evaluating? Yeah. when you're thinking about venture versus private equity. No, it's a good question. So. At a high level, we're looking at the same things. We're evaluating the team. We're evaluating, you know, the the performance, uh, the track record, obviously, the underlying portfolios of both. But that's really where it begins to to kind of differ. Um, and and again, you know, on the qualitative side, you know, the same things that are that are important on the venture right. side are important on the private equity side. Whether it's deal flow, whether it's value add, I mean, th- those are the same things that private equity and venture managers uh, talk about. Uh, what I would say is, you know, different is is how we kind of, when you get a, a level below that, you know, how how you sort of evaluate a manager and, you know, for instance, I'll give examples. So on in terms of track record, you know, if you're evaluating a private equity track record, there are things, you know, value creation analysis is 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 an important um, thing that we do. And basically, what that that shows is, you know, what were the return drivers for their portfolio portfolio companies? So, you know, what percentage of the return were they generating from um, earnings growth or uh, you know debt pay down, multiple expansion? Those are you know traditionally sort of the the primary value drivers. Whereas on the venture side, you know none of those things are relevant. Right. On the private equity side, we look at things like modified IRR. So we recalculate the IRR. Um, and we we do a sort of a time zero IRR calculation, and that's really to you know sort of even out or normalize the the performance across funds. So the IRR metric in particular, you know, is very dependent on, you know, when the cash flows come or go. Um, I think some of those metrics are less important on the venture side. On the venture side, really digging into the unrealized portfolio, trying to understand the valuations, what's driving those right. valuations, how sustainable they are. Uh, but otherwise, you know, basically the due diligence process is the same, but the types of things at sort of an underlying portfolio level that you're looking at are different. Invesco is a public company. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we've had Anybody else on the show that's that works for a public company? I don't think so. Yeah. Um, how does that have an effect on your business or your strategy or your way of uh, way of working with um, venture funds compared to some other you know private fund of funds or endowments or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. And, and what um, will the uh, compliance officers be listening for in, in this <laughs> right. podcast? Right. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, you you touched on it on it right there in terms of compliance, but that's that's one area where I think we're you know what we how we operate is different from you know an independent firm, whether it's a you know foundation endowment or whatever, even an independent uh, fund of funds. Um, you know, I think that's good though. It, you know, if anything, we are held to a higher standard. You know, in terms of compliance, in terms of you know from a legal perspective, in terms of what we can and can't do, can and can't say uh, in terms of disclosures than, than other folks. And I think that's that's ultimately a good thing. Um, you know, 
in terms of how we interact with with our our managers, I think you know. In this, we can we can talk to you know if we if we discuss um, you know how LPs can and should add value or try to add value to their to their their uh, VC managers. You know, one of the things that we you know do in in many cases is you know we connect either our VCs or their portfolio companies to the the broader asset management firm where where relevant. So that could be. You know, we are a financial services company and, you know, that could be fintech companies, which are, are looking to work with, you know, a, a larger strategic in, in some capacity. It could be cybersecurity companies, which are, you know, offering something for, you know, focused on the financial services space. So, you know, we try to be active in that in that respect as well. But, you know, I think where it's a positive for us and where we see it the most on a day to day basis is in, you know, first in sales and marketing, leveraging sort of the institutional sales force of Invesco, uh, but then also in terms of legal and back office. Um, you know, we have much broader sort of deeper resources at our disposal than than some of our um, brethren as LPs. So our audience, our listeners can't quite see this, but uh, you are younger than a lot of the other LPs that we've had on the podcast, um, probably by, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. You know, you've been an LP your whole career. Uh, you tend to be younger than some of your, maybe mm -hmm. your peers as a partner at Invesco. Um, how do you think that influences some of your decisions and, and way of working? Uh, interesting. So, yeah, and first I'd say that, you know, I probably am younger, but I also unfortunately look younger than, than I even am. So it's <laughs> compounding the problem you know, when I meet my, right. uh, my peers in the industry. Right. Um, but in terms of, you know, in terms of how we look, how we, or how I sort of look at investing and, you know, ultimately the directions that, that I will, you know, with my other partners will sort of, you know, position our firm. I think, you know, and actually I think there's a, a pretty interesting analog uh, to, you know, some of the newer venture funds is I take a little bit of a, or I try to take a bit of a of kind of a newer kind of bottom up approach. If you were going to, if one was going to, you know, build a, obviously we have a legacy and and we, you know, sure. uh, go date back to the eighties, but if you were going to build a, a fund of funds platform today, you know, what would that look like? Right. Um, and I think, you know, that may be some, maybe look, frankly, it could be something that everybody in the industry is, is sort of thinking about, but it's certainly something that's top of mind for me uh, in part because, I expect to be in this this industry for a long time, you know, potentially another thirty years, um, and you know, I think I have potentially the luxury of you know looking at this from a bottom up perspective and in terms of you know what should be the the approach uh, going forward. Yeah, what are what's the typical when you look at some of your peers? I mean, other than starting your own fund of funds firm, I mean, what is the typical path? Um, for uh, to get to you know be an yeah. LP partner, is it yeah. like you work your way up? You go to business. I mean, are you the typical kind of path outside of some of the you know let's say folks that we've talked to that have been in it for like thirty years and they have to start their own firm mm -hmm. and etc. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I think um, I think within venture, I'm not particularly typical on the venture fund of fund side. Right. So, and, right. and probably even less so actually on the private equity side, we'll get back to that. Um, but I think, you know, I've noticed that there is a, 
a reluctance to embrace sort of younger partners on the the fund of funds on the on the fund of fund side, um, which is does not necessarily extend to the venture side. So, for example, you know, I think LPs, um, you know, are very comfortable investing in younger venture managers. I mean, mm. increasingly comfortable, right. um, and and you know, younger than myself for sure. Right. Um, but you know, for whatever reason, there is this bias that you know your traditional partner at a at a fund of funds should mm. be an older individual. Um, you know, I think my path may be a little bit unconventional, um, but um, you know, I, I wonder if it's increasingly going to become the norm. I think mm. you know one of the things is you know I, I think you there is you know I, I don't want to get you know, portrayed or positioned as, as sort of ageist, but there is to some extent, you know, if if there are younger entrepreneurs and VCs, you know, often make the argument to us that they can sure. sort of relate to those yeah. entrepreneurs or connect with them in some respect better. You know, I wonder if the same thing doesn't extend to yeah. the LP side, mm-hmm. um, but we'll see. As a younger LP, what are the metrics through which you measure yourself? How do you show that you're performing well um, you know, the venture life cycle is really long. Mm-hmm. It's hard to figure out how good yeah. you are at this for a really long time. I assume the same is true in uh, in the LP ecosystem. So what are the things in between showing, you know, obviously amazing fun performance that a younger person in the industry can can do to show that they're doing well? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think it it really it's similar to to on the on the VC side. So, um, you know, it's unrealized or current performance. So those right. are the current marks, and right. you know, obviously, in addition to our performance as a firm, I'm going to have some sort of attribution within that. Um, and you know, I think that that should be or needs to be particularly good. Um, and then. In addition, just like uh, you know, VC firms that kind of source interesting or compelling uh, and perhaps attractive deals, at least on paper, you know, the same thing I think you know pertains to to the to the LP side, whether it's sourcing, you know, direct investment opportunities or or obviously fund investments. I know that Vesco historically and 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 also particularly recently um, invests in newer emerging small fund managers. And a lot of our listeners uh, fit that description. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you might get a lot of emails uh, <laughs> tomorrow. But um, yeah, it'd be great to understand that specific part of the of the firm and uh, and why it exists and how you how you approach it. Yeah, yeah. So it's always been part of our DNA. So this uh, you know, I think there's always been a, a comfort with emerging managers, um, newer funds, and I think some of that stems from you know a belief that that small and, and newer firms tend to uh, be hungrier and more incentivized by the carry opposed to the management fee uh, and so forth. But um, and and I think Phil in particular has a predisposition toward uh, toward smaller and newer funds, so that's that's always existed. Um, how do you define newer? How do you define newer and smaller? Yeah, um, it's a it's a good question. It's it's you know it's tough to kind of give one answer because you know we um, we've as I, as I was saying we've always done emerging uh, and newer funds, but we actually uh, sort of formalized that through a series of separate accounts beginning in in 05, uh, on behalf of Cal Sturs, 
Um, and you know, they we have a mandate on their behalf to invest in funds Roman numerals one, two, and three, okay. um, and perhaps four, uh, if the first fund wasn't an institutional fund. Um, and so they have a very you know explicit sort of definition or or criteria. Um, but then we also try to incorporate emerging funds in you know in our uh, in our commingled our, our core commingled products, which have no sort of you know guidelines or you know explicit you know allocation to emerging funds. We just think that a lot of the value you know uh, in the venture capital asset class in particular is driven by these funds. I think there was a Cambridge study that you know showed that something like 40 to 70% right. of the venture returns uh you know over the last 10 to 12 years any vintage is is driven by emerging managers and emerging yeah. funds and sort of anecdotally you can see that you know within our portfolio whether it was union square with their first fund whether it's you know foundry with their first fund uh you know first round groups other groups like that lowercase some a couple of funds that we're not in um you know there is I think they're, and, and we can talk about why emerging managers are, are increasingly doing so well um, and how that, how that sort of um, reconciles with this, you know, this dynamic in venture capital where performance is persistent and, you know, top quartile managers tend to stay top quartile mm-hmm. managers. Uh, but regardless, it is, it has been a lucrative place to invest. And it's something that we, you know, do not just for, you know, sort of social reasons, which, you know, I think exist within the, the CalSTRS mandate, but also purely for financial ones. And so we're talking, typically speaking, we're talking kind of hundred under a hundred million first fund one, two, mm-hmm. three is kind of how you would define small new funds. Is that right? Yeah, though though I'd say even, you know, I think we have a bias towards smaller funds because we, you know, fundamentally don't believe venture capital scales all that well. Right. Um, but you know, we we would you know, in in our emerging manager mandates, we would look at you know newer funds that were that were raising more than certainly a hundred or even two hundred million uh, in assets, um, and so, down to as small as call it I don't know. And down 20. to we've you know we've a, so far I think the smallest we've gone is about twenty million. Yeah. Um, but we've lo- certainly looked at funds you know much smaller than that. Yeah. And and so given your point of view on on. The way that venture doesn't necessarily scale efficiently. Um, do you then do you then believe that the that you know one common trajectory for 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 funds is that they they move up the stack a lot as as they grow and and you'll often see successive funds get larger and larger. Um, is that something you try to select against as you're looking at you know new new funds and emerging managers that you want to see something a little more linear or or staying you know about the same size or, or how do you think about the the way they may or may not grow when when you're considering those early yeah. investments yeah and you know it's it's interesting we 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 absolutely you know try to we have these conversations with the with the the underlying GP and and you know try to understand you know what their motivations are and and you know try to kind of ascertain where we think the next fund and subsequent funds will end up. But we I should I don't want to imply that we you know are sort of um, you know dogmatic in our in our you know focus on on you know really small funds and not allowing any fund size growth because we understand that you know as you grow a firm it's going to be somewhat natural to to grow the fund size and I, I don't think that that's you know inconsistent with sort of a thoughtful you know 
sort of performance-driven approach, but it's really where a, a fund increases the size of the, the, the fund or a firm increases the size of the fund you know, exponentially where we see performance really begin to deteriorate. And then on an absolute level, you know, I think certainly anything above a, a billion mm. dollars, but, but for us even well, well shy of that mm. you know, is something that we're gonna be uh, naturally less interested in. Mm-hmm. And so what do you do? Do you walk away? Do you say, you know, uh, fund manager X will, you know, it's been great. Um, and it's been a pleasure supporting you through fund one, two, three, four, five, six. But now you're so big, it doesn't make sense for us anymore. Yeah. I mean, not, 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 um, and presumably it's not a surprise for them. If they've been speaking to you right, for years right. and, and yeah, they understand true. your point of view on this. And they're gonna see it naturally, right? I mean, we are, you know, even before the point where we might even walk away, you know, our position sizes might be scaled down. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, we'll, we'll certainly have those conversations with them. I, I think we, you know, we sit on a lot of advisory boards uh, and, you know, we try to encourage firms to stay sort of disciplined and to, you know, we have a lot of pattern recognition here. Um, you know, Phil, I think has been doing this as long as anybody in the industry um, and, you know, knows what works and, and what doesn't work and, and has seen, you know, particularly in, in 99, 2000, what, what led firms to collapse. So, you know, I think we have a lot of data that we can share and, and try to, you know, impress upon people that there's, you know, you can still be very successful, build a, a franchise and a firm on a, on a small, smaller amount of, of capital, um, you know, particularly now as, as it gets cheaper and cheaper to start mm-hmm. companies. What are the particular attributes that get you excited about an emerging partnership or, or firm? Presumably, there's not much data at that point, or maybe they have. They've made some angel investments. Yeah. Um, so I think you know. I think there is, there is usually some data at that point. Um, you know, even, you know, taken again. This this predates me, but take you know Fred and Brad's track record pre USV. You know, Fred was at Flatiron, Brad was at AT and T, and you know there was. They had they had track records, um, you know, before coming together, and you know, similarly, we often see that whether it's you know track records now. I think it's more you know sort of the the norm that you'd see sort of somebody's angel investment track record, their personal investing track record. Um, you know, there are there are certainly spinouts from other other VC firms, um, but I think they are you know maybe a. A lesser proportion of the overall population than they used to be, um, and you know, particularly, I think they are uh, less frequently given attribution for, for their mm. for those deals. Mm. Um, so we do have some data, but to your point, yes, you're absolutely right. We, you know, the data is not as robust as it is when you have a you know a long established track record to to go off of. So, you know, a lot of the kind of the softer things are are really important. So those are, you know, reference calls. We we do reference calls with you know, VCs, entrepreneurs, you know, strategics in the space. Um, we, you know, we try to be pretty diligent on that. We do both, you know, on list and off list references. Um, you know, so we don't, we don't just rely on the references that we're, that we're given. Um, we also, you know, try to be somewhat more active in the ecosystem generally than some of our, our, uh, our peers. So, you know, we try to, you know, I think one of the things that can be a leading indicator for, uh, for, uh, sort of forward-looking venture performance is, you know, one's reputation amongst entrepreneurs, for example, on the ground, you know, and, you know, we try to, as much as possible, we try to, you know, take the pulse of, you know, the entrepreneurial community uh, when we're evaluating an investment in particularly a newer fund. 
how do you figure out if a partnership is going to work well together? I mean, yeah, Alex and I are have have uh, worked together for years before Notation Capital. Uh, we work together well now, but you know, there's always conflict, and we have to actively like manage our partnership and way of working together. How do you figure out if? A partnership is going to be capable of of doing that. Yeah, it, it must be one of the biggest existential risks to a to a firm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. And and you know we've seen you know we've we've actually invested or tried to invest in partnerships that ultimately um, dissolved. You know, we're not. In some way. Yeah, we're yeah. dissolved. We're not going concerns. Um, and these are all well meaning, you know, thoughtful people for the most part. So, um, you know, it's it's something that you. You know, you try to evaluate and and build, you know, some pattern recognition on. Um, you know, we've, I think, some people have a rule of thumb, and you know, even internally within within the IPC, our group, you know, that you know, if you have separate offices, that's sometimes with a small partnership, sometimes a yeah. uh, a recipe for disaster. But I don't know that you can even, you know, as take in as in one partner in country, New York, one right. partner in San Francisco. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, one in London, whatever, whatever it might be, um, you know, but I don't even know that you can, you can sort of draw such a kind of hard and fast line. Um, you know, I really do think it's to some extent it's idiosyncratic, you know, you try through again, through, through your conversations, which tend to be pretty iterative with those, you know, those folks, you try to, you know, build some sort of, um, internal consensus around, you know, this is, this is a team that works well together. They seem to complement each other. They seem to like each other. Um, sometimes, you know, you can tell, sometimes you can't, mm. uh, we, you know, certainly there's, there've been a few firms where, where it hasn't worked out from a, a team perspective, but for the most part it has. How do you think about partnerships that add to the partnership over time? Cause that to me feels like a very delicate piece of the venture firm puzzle in the sense that, you know, you back the original founding partnership, they add some people to the mix, uh, you may think they're great, and then find out it totally doesn't work. How do you work with your managers and advise them through that? And I assume you have lots of data sitting on top of it. So how do yeah. you how do you think about that? Well, I think it's it's rare that you would I'm I'm trying to think of an instance where we, you know, affirm has 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 not added to the partnership over right. time. So to some mm -hmm. extent, you you just have to get comfortable with that. that right, that's right. going to happen. And we also try not to you know weigh in at least not heavily on hiring decisions at the at the venture partnership because you know we don't want to micromanage our our mm -hmm. VCs. Um, but, but it must affect your investment decisions pretty heavily once the next fund oh, sure. comes up. For sure, and and. You know, ultimately, as we're making a, a subsequent investment decision, you know, we will, if particularly if there's a track record for that individual, we will, you know, create in many cases a synthetic track record where we will mm -hmm. take, you know, the existing record and overlay, you know, mm -hmm. the 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 new partners uh, record on top of that. Um, but ultimately, I think you know what the bigger risk is 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 the qualitative one that I think mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you're you're kind of alluding to. Um, I think for the most part. If where we've backed, you know, firms that that are thoughtful and disciplined and and um, you know, sort of not not focused on on growth in terms of AUM, but you know, focused on on um, you know, continuing sort of the 
the the original thesis of the firm and 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 you know staying disciplined. I think those firms, even when they do add people, I think it tends to work out. Uh, I was curious during when you're when you're evaluating a firm that you haven't worked with before. You know, you talked about doing a lot of reference checks and, and talking to industry peers and founders and things like that. But to what to what extent do you reach outside your firm to discuss potential firms with other LP level investors? Ever? Never? Yeah, yeah. I was I was probably remiss earlier. Uh, we we try to do that in in most every fund yeah. that we invest in. We we try to speak to other uh, either other existing LPs, prospective LPs. Mm. Um, you know, we. We, it's possible that we do less of that than others. And, mm. and, you know, at least the way we kind of think about it internally is we don't like to be influenced by, yeah. you know, the, yeah. the investments that, you know, the decisions that other people are making, um, right. you know, to some extent, I don't really want to know who your other LPs mm. are necessarily. Mm. Um, we will ask it. So we, we generally get that information. I don't want to sound hypocritical. Um, but, you know, in terms of, we want to make sort of our own, independent judgments about a firm. And I think, you know, where we've been uh, historically uh, the most right and where we've done the best in many cases has been with firms where, you know, they were not easy fundraisers. Mm. So, um, you know, just because we've discussed some of these firms, you know, and again, the, these examples are going to predate me for the most part, but Union Square's, you know, first fund or, you know, Spark's first fund, which I think they actually had a placement agent for. So, you know, it's mm. it's it's not necessarily the case that, you know, um, ease of fundraising correlates to success. Um, it can be the case for sure, but I don't think, you know, we definitely try to, you know, identify situations where we have conviction around a manager and, and stick with that conviction regardless of what, of, you know, what their LP base looks like. Having said that, again, you know, we definitely want to know, you know, just, just to be sort of comprehensive and make sure that we're not missing anything. We, we do have those conversations with mm -hmm. other folks. Yeah, I, I love that perspective. I mean, we have a very similar perspective at, at the the stage that we invest, I we often talk about how we really kind of don't like talking to other VCs about the companies that we're looking at, not because we're secretive about it, just simply because we like to come to our own informed decision as a partnership right. before yeah. um, being influenced one way or the other by another um, VC's perspective. On the other hand, if they have some specific information either about the space or they possibly have worked with the founder before, then I'd want to know that from anybody, whether it's a VC or another founder exactly. or a former right. employer or sure. whatever. And sometimes that happens to be another VC. But uh, but the, for the most part, um, yeah, our job is to come to those on our own informed decision on an investment. And uh, and when we like something, you know, we try to we try to we try to lead. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I think that in general, talking to other prospective investors about a company, most likely, the most likely outcome is that you'll be less likely to invest coming out of that conversation. You'll be, I, I think that generally two sort of potential co-investors on a deal talking about a potential deal are less, in general, less likely to convince each other that it sounds like a good idea. I think it only decreases the likelihood that you'll invest. I, I think That's it's important to talk to them in general and try and and get any you know any important information that may be out there. But just as a sort of higher level viewpoint, I think there's some like 
social incentive to be, you know, a little bit more critical and negative sometimes. There's a sort of yeah. performative aspect to the conversation sometimes. Of course, actually, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that to some extent extends to the LP world too, in that, you know, if I, if I, if, if we're having a, a reference call about a fund and if I've, you know, um, he, uh, if I've said no to a fund that you are approving or vice versa, you know, there's, there's sort of a, an implicit sort of, um, yeah. you know, almost like a power dynamic where I'm, I'm kind of, you know, you're, you're better, you have better access right. or, or vice versa. And, you know, we just try to the extent possible. And, and again, we don't always succeed in this, but we try to avoid that. And we, you know, I think we can point to a number of cases where we have been, you know, if not the first institutional investor, then, you know, one of, you know, the first few institutional investors in, in, in a number of cases. So VCs tend to negotiate pro rata as, you know, wherever they can. Our belief is that more so than whether or not it's in the documents, pro rata is something that's earned over time. So even if we have pro rata, the assumption is that, you know, Sequoia could come in or who, whatever other fund and uh, they're going to take the whole round and we're not going to mm -hmm. get our pro rata anyway. So we have to earn our pro rata, even if it's in the legal docs. Um, and that's built through a relationship with the founder, especially from day one. Uh, my understanding is that typically LPs don't have the right legally to invest in subsequent funds. So do you think about that similarly? My understanding is there's kind of a secret handshake somewhere where if you invest in fund one, you'll be able to invest in all the funds in the future. Is that, is that right? I, th I think it's, there's inertia is how I would characterize it. So, you know, mm -hmm. if you, if you've been an investor in prior funds, you, you know, and you don't do anything, um, you know, unseemly, or you don't give a reason of fund a reason to kind of kick you out, then I think you're, you're probably in good shape. Um, but, but yes, there's, there's generally, uh, to your point, there's not typically a, a legal right. I think we have, you know, in a, in a couple of instances, you know, going back a few years, you know, actually written that into a, a side letter where, we'll, where okay. we'll have the, the legal right. I actually don't think, you know, that's a good idea. I mean, mm -hmm. I think, you know, to your point, you know, on the VC side, you know, you ultimately have to earn your, your seat. And I think we view it the same way. So we have to, you know, hopefully earn our seat, you know, in, in the best funds kind of going forward. And, and I think, you know, we either do that through probably predominantly through, you know, sort of stability of, of investment and capital. I think, you know, what's underappreciated about, you know, why endowments have some of the best access in venture capital is that they are, you know, some of the longest tenured investors in the asset class. I don't mean, it's you know, their capital. Yeah, but I don't even mean that their their duration is very long, but they go way back right. in venture they just capital. started way earlier. Yeah, they they invested in venture capital starting in, you know, sort of the late 1960s, early uh, 1970s. Um, so they've just been around a long time in the asset class. I think we have to, you know, for our part, we have to kind of convey, um, you know, that, that that's going to be the case with us as well. And, um, and you know, to your kind of point, we have to kind of earn our, earn our keep, earn our spot in the best funds. Are there situations in which LPs like elbow each other out of funds that they've maybe already been investors in? So, for example, you know, I'm just making up an example, but Invesco is a is an investor in Fund One, Fund Two, and Endowment X comes along. Stanford University comes along and says, "Hey, VC, um, 
we want in and you should kick the other LPs out and uh, because we're better and smarter and we'll be with you forever. Does yeah, that, no, I'm, look, I'm, I'm sure that happens. I, okay. I don't, uh, you know, I'm not not aware of it. I mean, of course, we, you know, we fight for our own allocations. So if we had a, you know, X allocation in one fund, we we might want X plus five in the next fund. Sure. Um, but, and we might do that, you know, ultimately to the detriment of, of some other LP. Right. But we, you know, we certainly haven't sort of singled out you know, any LP to say, you know, you, you know, we, we deserve this or we should have, you're better off going with right. us versus this group. Again, we try to, you know. So there is, yeah. So there is kind of a hand, a secret handshake also between a lot of the institutional LPs in the sense that you're not going to tell a VC to, you know, leave the other institutional LP behind. Like there is kind of a unspoken code between VCs and institutional LPs that if you represent X percent of a fund, you should have somewhere in that range going forward with future funds. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that that's, you know, necessarily sort of ubiquitous, that view. Um, I think we are, and particularly I am very, you know, conscious of the fact that, um, you know, at least for me, I'm going to be in this industry for a long time. Right. It's a very long, right. you know, duration asset class. So, you know, you know, taking you don't want to kind of cut anyone else at, at your own expense. And, 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 you know, we feel, and we're confident that ultimately, you know, people are going to want us as an LP um, either because of, of the stability of the capital base or because of, of the value that we, you know, endeavor to add to our, to our GPs. Last question, unless Alex has, has a couple more, but uh, I know that one of your side projects is investing in breweries as an angel investor, uh, we worked basically out of a brewery for our first year, although we have since moved. Um, Shouts to Threes and Josh. Yeah, holler. And I need to get, I need to, we need to discuss that because I have a, uh, an interesting business proposition for them. Okay. Okay. Josh loves business propositions, (laughs) so we'll definitely Um, hook you up. um, How did you, how did you first start doing that? And um, how did you get, not just excited about angel investing, but specifically beer and breweries. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. Actually, at um, when I was at business school, um, one of the courses that, that you can take is is a course um, where you actually your your project is to identify and ultimately go out and try to buy a, a company. Um, mm-hmm. And it it could be in most cases it's a theoretical exercise, but in some cases it's actually you know people actually do end up buying those companies. The group that I was with included a few of my friends who had similar interests, and we actually did make a real offer on a brewery. Wow. Um, so this was uh, Cisco Brewery, actually, in Nantucket. Um, wow. And, you know, we op- we made an offer, and, and they, you know, declined it. Um, we doubled the offer, and they, you know, just to see what they would say, and they, they also declined that, and then, mm. you know, threw out some astronomical yeah. <laughs> number just to see if they had any interest in selling, and they didn't. Okay. And if you actually look back, the, you know, that brewery has done, has really grown, you know, very quickly since, and so they've, they've done very well. Um, but I think, you know, the... Part of the reason that and that I'm interested in, and we were interested in it is, you know, first I think there is a secular trend toward uh, toward craft beer, yeah. um, and I don't see that um, either sort of uh, uh, slowing or or certainly not reversing um, in 
anytime soon. Um, and, you know, in addition, I think the margins on, on craft beer in particular um, are, are quite good, particularly if you're able to sell the beer from the tap room, which a lot of these breweries are. Um, and then, uh, and then finally, a lot of the breweries, and this this sort of spoke to why you know we wanted to buy one is you know a lot of breweries are actually undermanaged. You know they're run um, historically as lifestyle businesses, and, and less so you know um, the way a lot of other companies and yeah. certainly companies mm-hmm. in the tech space are run. Um, so you know I think it was kind of the confluence of those factors that that led me to it. Um, invested in in my first brewery, I think it was 2011 or 2012. Uh, have invested in a few few subsequently, and they're all very different from each other. Located in different regions, um, you know, focus on different types of beer. Uh, have very different views and, and approaches to sort of capital raising. Um, but it's an interesting space, and you know, it's been so far, at least on paper, it's been uh, it's been pretty good. You think we're going to see similar trends in the uh, craft cannabis industry? <laughs> Craft cannabis is in not craft beer and cannabis, but but craft cannabis independent. As, and I know, asked that as because a parallel I actually saw to, huh. I saw recently a craft cannabis beer huh. for the first time. Mm. Um, wow. So I, I don't know if that's mm. a growing trend or if this was a one off. Um, but uh, I imagine that's that's probably true. I imagine there is you know particularly I think if it's legalized at the at the federal right. level. I mean, mm. one of the issues with with investing right. in in marijuana companies or related companies is you can't do it um, as you know I, as a as a resident of New York. I can't invest in a in, as, as you probably know in a in a company based in in Colorado, a cannabis company. Um, so I think a lot of that that sort of those regulatory dynamics would have to be mm-hmm. kind of sorted first. But you're you're probably right. I think it is it is likely inevitable. I, just a matter of time. Seem to be some parallels there. Yeah, one of the final questions we've been asking a lot of LPs that we have on the show is um, is about diversity and what role they play in the ecosystem as it relates to diversity. Um, it is not a secret that startup ecosystem and the venture ecosystem um, suffers from a massive lack of diversity. Um, our sense is there's a little bit more in the LP ecosystem for a bunch of different reasons. Um, but We've been asking folks to what degree do they think um, they what what role do they play in it and how and whether or not they believe that at some point that 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 will trickle down from LP to VC firms to to startup founders, if at all. Yeah, so you know it, it's interesting because we've we've seen the same sort of dynamics and 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 phenomenon in terms of the diversity at the LP side. Um, you know, I think we actually some of our emerging manager um, uh, focus capital also has a um, a diversity component to it. So, okay. you know, we we actually have um, you know a program put in place and, and a certain amount of capital that we you know try to allocate to uh, managers within with with some diversity within the GP, whether that's you know ethnic diversity or um you know a a woman within the within the gp or um or so forth so you know it is something that's top of mind for us and we think generally um you know is something that you know lps should be um you know pushing or at least kind of focusing on at the vc yeah. level mm-hmm. um having said that you know we ultimately think it's sort of a bottom up phenomenon in terms of what is driving the lack of diversity. So you have, you know, frankly, a 
uh, a lack of diversity, which has been widely reported at technology companies in general. And, you know, those ultimately those technology companies are who are, you know, are spawning a lot of the companies, either the startups or the, you know, the VCs. Um, and until you have diversity, you know, at those tech companies, I think it isn't going to I don't think you're going to see that necessarily that trickle down effect that you'd mm. like to see. Um, but we're, you know, it's it, we're, we're pushing forward. I think a lot of the people, you know, I don't know if they're just paying lip service to it, but. You know, I do think there's a lot of folks, a lot of VCs who are, you know, either increasingly uh, backing diverse entrepreneurs um, or even, you know, helping to seed other VCs who happen to, you know, right. have some diversity within the right. GP. So I think all these dynamics are super healthy for the industry um, and, and you know, I think are going to become increasingly important uh, on a go-forward basis. But yeah, it is... It is um, something that we've we've uh, also noticed yeah um sounds like you actively are are um trying to address as well so um evan thanks so much um this one is actually going to go to production <laughs> we promise and uh it's a real pleasure and it's been it's been great to get your perspective particularly um in contrast to some of the other folks we've had on the show so likewise it. thanks for having me thanks a lot This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lyons, partners at Notation Capital. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital or on AngelList. We'd like to thank our friend Sapphire Ventures for sponsoring this debut series. Sapphire Ventures is a global venture capital firm that invests in growth stage technology companies as well as early stage venture firms across the technology landscape. Sapphire Ventures shares our desire to bring transparency and candor to the venture ecosystem. We're very grateful to be collaborating with them on this project. We'd also like to thank Ben Glowey, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound. Finally, we'd also like to thank our friends at Mattermark who are helping us with distribution and making an amazing product. You should try it, mattermark.com.